Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Hugo and Campbell finalist Sarah Gailey came onto the scene in 2015 and has since become one of the sharpest, funniest voices in pop culture online, going viral frequently for their stories and joie de vivre. (laughs) It's a a good bio. Uh, They are a regular contributor to multiple websites, including Tour.com, where their Women of Harry Potter series was named a Hugo finalist for Best Related Work. Gailey's nonfiction has appeared in Mashable and the Boston Globe, and they write short fiction for various popular outlets. Mallory O'Mara is the best-selling author of The Lady from the Black Lagoon, along with being a screenwriter and a film producer. Whether it's for the screen or the page, Mallory seeks creative projects filled with horror and monsters. Every week, she hosts the literary podcast, Reading Glasses. She lives in Los Angeles. Please give Sarah and Mallory a warm skylight welcome. Wow. Okay. I These feel are big a, chairs, Sarah. I know. I feel I need to share some information with all of you, which is that there is a uh, kitty cat upstairs. That's how you know we all like you because we're here and not yeah. with the cat. Well, because we were sitting up there desperately waiting for the cat to come and greet us, and the cat was like, and <laughs> then just as uh, our bios were starting to be read and we were starting to be introduced, the cat came out and looked at us and still was like, yep. So this it was event, a magical moment. Yeah, this event has been blessed. <laughs> Nothing can go wrong. Nope. Um, I think everything's going to go great. It's going to be fantastic. The worst thing that could happen tonight has not happened, which is that I would not get to see that cat. Yep. We're in the clear. We can all just go home. We're doing great. Um, thank you all so much for coming out tonight. Oh, my gosh. I, uh, I live in L.A. now. And I'm like new here, and I'm so excited to be getting to know all the bookstores and the literary community and the reader community. And it just m- makes my heart all full of goo that you're all here. So thank you. Aren't hearts normally full of goo? Not They're mine. like supposed to be full of goo. Bone dry, baby. <laughs> <laughs> How do you all feel about hearing a reading? Yeah. Is it cool if I read from this? Yeah. Neat. I picked that one out. Yeah. Yeah, no, Mallory told me I have to, so. I don't want to make her mad. Is this, I'm, I'm going to get this a little bit lower because I'm very tiny. Um, tonight I will be reading to you from chapter one of Magic for Liars and a little bit of chapter two. Um, there's also a prologue, so if you buy it and you start reading it and you're like, that's not what this bitch read to me tonight, it's because I'm, I'm skipping ahead to a part. So there's still a surprise in store for you on page one. It might take a little while to get there, but I'll tell you everything. And I'll tell you the truth, as best I can. I used to lie, but when I tell you the story, you'll understand why I had to lie. You'll understand that I didn't have a choice. I just wanted to do my job. No. I said I would tell you the truth. Of course I had a choice. We all have choices, don't we? And if I tell myself that I didn't have a choice, I'm no better than an adulterer who misses his daughter's dance recital because he's shacking up in some shitty hotel with his wife's sister. He tells himself that he doesn't have a choice too, but we know better than that. He has choices. 
He chooses to tell the first lie, and then he chooses to tell every other lie that comes after that. He chooses to buy a burner phone to send pictures of his cock to his mistress, and he chooses to tell his wife that he has a business trip, and he chooses to pull cash out of an ATM to pay for the room. He tells himself that all of his choices are inevitable, and he tells himself that he isn't lying. But when I hand his wife an envelope full of photographs and an invoice for services rendered, her world is turned upside down because he chose. If I try to pretend I didn't have a choice, I'm not any different from the liars whose lives I ruin, and that's not who I am. I'm nothing like them. My job is to pursue the truth. So, the truth. It's not that I didn't have a choice. I did. I had a thousand choices. I was so close to making the right one. The man who stood between me and the door to my office was trembling thin, his restless eyes sunken with desperation, holding a knife out like an offering. It was warm for January, but he was shaking in the morning air. He wasn't going to follow through, I thought, too scared. But then he licked his dry lips with a dry tongue, and I knew that his fear and my fear were not the same fear. He'd do what he thought he needed to do. Nobody decides to become the kind of person who will stab a stranger in order to get at what's inside her pockets. That's a choice life makes for you. Okay, I said, reaching into my tote. I hated my hand for shaking. All right, I'll give you what I got. I rummaged past my wallet, past my camera, past the telephoto lens in its padded case. I pulled out a slim money clip, peeled off the cash, and handed it to him. He could have demanded more. He could have taken my whole bag. But instead he took the cash, finally looking me in the eyes. Sorry, he said, and then he made to run past me, up the stairs that led from my basement-level office to the sidewalk. He was close enough that I could smell his breath. It was oddly sweet, fruity, like the gum me and my sister Tabitha used to steal from the drugstore when we were kids, the kind that always lost its flavor after ten seconds of chewing. Looking back, I can't figure out why we ever thought it was even worth taking. The man pelted up the stairs. One of his feet kicked out behind him and he slipped. Shit, 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 I said, rearing back, trying to dodge him before he fell into me. He flailed and caught himself on my shoulder with a closed fist, knocking the wind out of me. Jesus fucking Christ, just go! I said it with more fear than venom, but it worked. He bolted, dropping his knife behind him with a clatter. I listened to him running down the sidewalk upstairs, his irregular footfalls echoing between the warehouses. I listened until I was sure that he was gone. Bad things just happen sometimes. That's what I've always told myself, and it's what I told myself then. I could have bled out right there in the stairs leading down to my office, and not a soul would have known why it happened, because there was no why. No use dwelling on it. It would have been the end of me, sudden and senseless. I clenched my jaw and pushed away the thought of how long it would have taken before someone found me, before someone wondered what had happened to me. I pushed away the question of who would have noticed that I was gone. I didn't have time for an existential crisis. It didn't have to be a big deal. People get mugged all the time. I wasn't special just because it was my morning to lose some cash. I didn't have time to be freaked out about it. I had shit to do. I just wanted to go to work. So I made my way down the remainder of the steps toward the door that hid in the shadowy alcove at the bottom of the stairs. I nudged a Gatorade bottle with my toe. The man had been sleeping in my doorway. He couldn't have seen it by the dim light of the street lamps at night, but my name was written across the solid metal of the door in flaking black letters, Ivy Gamble, private investigator, meetings by appointment only. I hadn't gotten the words touched up since I'd first rented the place. I always figured I'd just let them fall away until nothing was left but a shadow of the letters. I don't think I needed to be easy to find. If someone didn't know where my office was, they weren't a client yet. <laughs> Besides, walk-ins weren't exactly my bread and butter. 
The deadbolt locked automatically when the reinforced steel swung shut. That door was made to withstand even the most determined of visitors. I didn't run my fingers across the letters. If I'd known what would change before the next time I walked down those stairs? Well, I probably wouldn't have run my fingers across the letters then either. I probably wouldn't have given them a second glance. I've never been good at recognizing what moments are important, what things I should hang on to while I've got them. I stood on my toes to tap at the light bulb that hung above the door with a still shaking hand. The filaments rattled, dead. On nights when that bulb was lit, nobody slept outside the door, which meant that nobody got surprised coming down the stairs in the morning. I bit my lip and tapped at the light bulb again. I took a deep breath, tried to find something in me to focus on. Imagine you're a candle and your wick is made of glass. I gave the bulb a hard stare. I tapped at it one more time. It flickered to life. My heart skipped a beat, but then the bulb died again with a sound like a fly smacking into a set of Venetian blinds and went dead, a trace of smoke graying the inside of the glass. I shook my head, angry at myself for hoping. It hadn't been worth a shot. I thought I had a grown kid stuff like that. Stupid. I stooped to pick up the little knife from where it lay just in front of the door, squinting at what looked like blood on the blade. Shit, I said for the fourth time in as many minutes. As I opened the heavy steel door, a white arc of pain lanced through my shoulder. I looked down, letting the door swing shut behind me. There was a fresh vent in my sleeve, and blood was welling up under it fast. He must have had the knife in his hand when he caught himself on me. I pulled off my ruined jacket, dropping it and the bloodstained knife on the empty desk in the waiting area of the office. It fell with a heavy thump, and I remembered my phone in the pocket, the call I was already late for. Sure enough, there were already two pissy texts from the client. I dialed his number with one hand, leaving streaks of stairway grime on the screen, then clamped the phone between my ear and my good shoulder as I headed for the bathroom. I listened to the ringing on the other end of the line and turned on the hot water tap as far as it would go, trying to scald the God knows what off my palms, trying not to think about the water bill or any of the other bills. <laughs> the cheap pink liquid soap I stocked in the office wasn't doing anything to cut the shit on my hands, which was somehow slippery and sticky at the same time. My shoulder bled freely as I lathered again and again. Sorry I'm late, Glenn, I said when he picked up. My voice probably still shook with leftover adrenaline, probably betrayed how much my shoulder was starting to hurt. Fortunately, Glenn wasn't the kind of person who would give a shit whether or not I was okay. He immediately started railing about his brother, who he was sure was stealing from their aunt, and who I had found was in fact just visiting her on the regular, like a good nephew. <laughs> I put Glenn on speaker so he could rant while I peeled off my shirt with wet hands, wincing at the burning in my shoulder. I stood there in my camisole, wadded up the shirt, and pressed it to the wound. The bleeding was slow, but the pain was a steady strobe. I hope you don't think I'm going to pay for this shit, Glenn was saying, and I closed my eyes for a couple of seconds. I allowed myself just a few heartbeats of bitterness at how unfair it was that I had to deal with Glenn and look for my long-neglected first aid kit at the same time. I was going to take just a moment of self-pity before going into my patient, I've provided you a service and you were well aware of my fee schedule routine. <laughs> but then I heard the unmistakable sound of the front door to my office opening. I froze for a gut-clenched second before hanging up on Glenn. I let my blood-soaked shirt drop to the floor, shoved my phone into my bra so it wouldn't vibrate against the sink when he called back. I heard the office door close and a fresh flood of adrenaline burned through me. Someone was in the office with me. No one had an appointment. No one should have been able to get inside at all. That door locked automatically when it closed, and I knew it had closed. I knew it. 
I heard it click shut behind me. This wouldn't be the first break-in attempt, but it was the first time someone had tried it while I was in the office. I pressed my ear to the door, carefully gripped the knob without letting it rattle in my fingers. The lock on the door was busted, but at least I could try to hold it shut if they decided to look around. I'm here to see Miss Gamble. A woman's voice, clear and steady. What the fuck? I could hear her footsteps as she walked across the waiting area. I winced, remembering my jacket and the bloodstained knife on the abandoned admin desk. She murmured something that sounded like, oh dear. <laughs> my phone buzzed against my armpit, but Glenn and his yelling would just have to wait. Once you've finished treating your wound, you can come out of the bathroom, Miss Gamble. I don't care that you're in your camisole. We have business to discuss. I straightened so fast that something in my back gave a pop. My head throbbed. I stared at the white-painted wood of the door as I realized who was waiting for me out there. This was not good. This was not good at all. The shitty waiting room couch creaked. She was serious. She was going to wait for me. I rushed through cleaning up the slice in my shoulder, wadding up wet paper towels and scrubbing blood off my arm, half ignoring and half savoring how much it hurt. The bandage I hastily taped over the wound soaked through with blood within a few seconds. I would say I considered getting stitches, but... That'd be a lie. <laughs> I'd let my arm fall off before setting foot inside a hospital. I checked myself in the mirror. Not a welcome sight. I pulled my phone out of my bra, ran a hand through my hair. There was only so much I could do to make myself look less like a wreck, and I kept the once-over brief as possible. I like mirrors about as much as I like hospitals. I opened the door and strode out with much more confidence than a person who has just been caught hiding in a bathroom should have been able to muster. I've always been good at faking that much. The short, dark-haired woman standing in the front office regarded me coolly. Good morning, Miss Gamble. You can call me Ivy, Miss... The woman's handshake was firm but not crushing. It was the handshake of a woman who felt no need to prove herself. Marion Torres, she replied. The woman peered at my face, then nodded, having seen there whatever it was she was searching for. I could guess what it was. It was a face I couldn't seem to get away from. Ms. Torres, I replied in my most authoritative, this is my house voice. <laughs> Would you like to step into my office? I led Torres to the narrow door just beyond the empty admin desk, flipping the light on as I entered. I opened a top drawer, sweeping a stack of photographs into it, fresh shots of a client's wife and her tennis instructor making choices together. <laughs> Nothing anyone should see, especially not as a first impression. Although I thought if this woman was who I thought she was, I didn't want to impress her anyway. Torres sat straight-backed in the client chair. It was a battered green armchair with a low back, chosen to make clients feel comfortable but not in charge. I remember being proud of myself for the strategy I put into picking that chair. That was a big thing I solved. The question of what kind of chair I should make desperate people sit in before they asked for my help. <laughs> Light streamed into the office through a narrow, wire-reinforced casement window behind my desk. The sunlight caught the threads of silver in Torres' pin-straight black bob. I felt the sliver of camaraderie that I always experienced in the presence of other salt-and-pepper women, but it evaporated fast enough. Torres stared intently at the fine motes of dust that danced in the sunlight. As I watched, the dust motes shifted to form a face that was an awful lot like mine. I swallowed around rising irritation. I would not yell at this woman. You don't look exactly like her, Torres said. I thought you would. The face is the same, but we're not that kind of twins, I replied. I crossed behind my desk and pulled the shutters over the window closed, rendering the dust motes and the familiar face invisible. Is she okay? She's fine, Torres said. She's one of our best teachers, you know. I settled into my swivel chair, folding my hands on top of my desk blotter. All business. So you're from the academy. 
Torres smiled, a warm, toothy grin that immediately made me feel welcome. Damn, she's good, I thought. Making me feel welcome in my own office. <laughs> I pushed the comfort away and held it at arm's length. No thanks, not interested. I am indeed, she said. I'm the headmaster at Osthorne Academy. Not headmistress, I asked before I could stop myself. I cringed inter internally as her smile cooled by a few degrees. Yes, please do not try to be cute about my title. There are more interesting things to be done with words. We spend most of our students' freshman year teaching them that words have power. And we don't waste that power if we can help it. I felt a familiar principal's office twist in my stomach and had to remind myself again that this was my office. We sat in silence for a moment. Torres seemed content to wait for me to ask why she was there. I couldn't think of a good way to ask without being rude, and this woman didn't strike me as someone who had brook poor manners. Distant shouts sounded from outside, friendly but loud. Almost certainly kids skipping school to smoke weed behind the warehouses. They'd sit with their backs against the cement walls, scraping out the insides of cheap cigars and leaving behind piles of tobacco and Tootsie Pop wrappers. Torres cleared her throat, and I decided to accept defeat. What can I do for you, Miss Torres? Torres reached into her handbag and pulled out a photograph. It was a staff photo taken in front of a mottled blue backdrop, the kind of photo I might have seen in the front few pages of my own high school yearbook. A 25-cent word sprang unbidden into my mind. Noctilucent. The word described the glow of a cat's eyes at night, but it also seemed right for the woman in the photograph. She was a moonbeam turned flesh, pale with white blonde hair and wide-set light green eyes. Beautiful was not an appropriate word. She was otherworldly. She looked impossible. That, Torres said, after letting me stare for an embarrassingly long time, is Sylvia Capley. She taught health and wellness at Osthorne. Five months ago, she was murdered in the library. I need you to find out who killed her. Sarah goddamn Gailey. So I'm a very lucky person in that one of my very favorite people in the world wrote, I think, my favorite book of the entire year. Uh, have you guys ever seen Underworld? I'm going to spoil this movie for you. I'm so sorry. There's a scene in Underworld where one of the characters is fighting another character, and they get chopped in half, but the knife is so sharp that for a few seconds they don't know they've been cut in half. I love it when that happens. That's what reading your writing is like, Sarah Gailey. <laughs> <laughs> so... One of the big themes of Magic for Liars is Ivy's exclusion from the magic world of magic users. Is that something that you drew from with like real life experience from like feeling excluded in any part of your own life? Um, as a besides not being magic, as a queer, non-binary, disabled person, I don't think I've ever felt excluded from anything. <laughs> what? The world isn't super easy for you? No, it's great. Like nothing bad happens um. <laughs> ever. <laughs> um, I, I spent a lot of my life trying to understand who I am because every, every, uh, pretty much everything about me is, is something that society at large told me growing up is either impossible and doesn't exist or is very bad and you should not do it. Um, I'm doing everything wrong. And so, like, as a result, uh, when I was a teenager and, you know, a little kid, I didn't really see those parts of myself. I just was like, well, everything feels bad all the time because I don't feel like I go anywhere. But I'm exactly like all these other people around me, so why should that be an issue? <laughs> I, I, I was in, like, like, the smart kid programs, but sometimes I'm like, was there anything going on up here? <laughs> um... And so I drew a lot from a feeling of trying to figure out 
what it was about myself that I needed to change or understand differently in order to fit into the mold that I knew I was meant for. The mold that I was meant for was um, heterosexual, thin woman who only ever wants one person to love them and also is really invested in pre-calculus. <laughs> and I kept being like, like, you know when you have a puzzle and you've got two pieces and you look at them and you're like, yeah, yep, you two go together. And then you go to put them together and they just almost don't fit. But you're like, I know, I just know that if I believe, <laughs> I can make it happen. And I drew from so much of that in my book. Um, I didn't encounter as a, as a teenager or as a child any bullying that I recognized as bullying. I was bullied all the time, but I was so weird and oblivious to it that I was like, oh, I just don't get their sense of humor. It's fine. Um, and I think Ivy has a lot of that. Ivy has a lot of like, she has a lot of resentment. She has a lot of anger. She has a lot of like, why am I not allowed to go where the people are? But she's never like, it's because they're wrong. She's always saying to herself, I'm just not made the way they need me to be made in order to want me and love me and accept me. And I drew on a lot of that for this book. I drew on a lot of that sense of like, maybe if I just get bangs, <laughs> it'll all work out. Happens to me once a year. Well, <laughs> call me next time. We'll help each other. Sarah. Yeah, I'll save you from yourself. <laughs> so as you can tell by the title of the book, there's a lot of magic and there's a lot of lying. But at least when spoiler. it, spoiler alert, so sorry, you can all go home. Uh, at least when it comes to the lies we tell ourselves, do you think that lying is magic? Oh, yeah. Lying is, lying is magic in a couple of different directions. Um, there's this advice that you get a lot when you're a new writer, which you may have heard before, fake it till you make it, that's like just if you tell everyone around you that you know what you're doing and you tell yourself that you know what you're doing, It'll be great. Ivy does a lot of that. She does not know what she's doing, just for the record. Um, that's a kind of magic because it can work, right? It can help you overcome your self-doubt. It can help you make other people believe that you're capable when they otherwise wouldn't because of aforementioned everything about you. Um, but it's also dark magic. I think that people lie to themselves so much um, again, in that way to say, what, what is it that needs to be true about me for me to fit? That I'll you need bangs. That does not That's need to be lie. true about me. That's a lie that we tell ourselves no. once a year, Sarah. No. <laughs> we don't, we're not powerful enough. <laughs> I, this is, a, not an opinion. This is an objective fact. You have to be deeply intrinsically powerful in order to be able to manage bangs. Yeah. I see people in this crowd with bangs, and I fear you. <laughs> oh, I don't have I don't have that in me. Um, I I think that we lie to we lie to each other about who we need to be in order to fit in. Um, I mean, I've have been on a growth trajectory my entire life, right? I have had times in my past where I had internalized misogyny and queer phobia and transphobia and ableism, and I probably still have a lot of internalized stuff that makes me turn to people and without telling them in these words, say, you don't belong 
you're not part of this. You're not one of us. And I probably say that to people other than like abusive predators who don't belong and are not part of this and can go out to the salt flats. Um, and that's a lie. Telling people that they, they can't be one of us because of something about them that we've decided isn't allowed, that is intrinsic to them, um, it's a lie. And it's one that we tell a lot and that we use to curse the world. So scary. Yeah. So there's a lot, there's magic for liars, but there's also a lot of sexiness for liars in this book. So it's, the, this book is very sexy, but it's also very sex positive. Was that something that you were like, you know, you got your bourbon, you were like ready to go, I'm going to make this book sexy. Or was that something you had to go back and like oh, sprinkle the sexiness on top? I wish I had bourbon for writing the sexiness. It is my opinion that romance writers and erotica authors are some of the strongest, they represent some of the strongest craft in the writing community. Um, and I say this because I deeply respect what they do. And I also say this because I have such a hard time. Like, I'm a very sex-positive person. I, like, you know, I've lived, like, a whole life. I got, I got, I got stuff back behind me that, that has happened in my life and times. Um, but writing a sex scene, I turn colors. I, like, I start sweating when I get to the part of a book where I'm like, and then their hands touched I'm always like <gasps> <laughs> and in this book there is a pretty intense makeout scene which I wrote sitting at my desk at my day job at the time <laughs> and it was so stressful to write because I was like oh man there okay <laughs> Ooh, there's a there's a there's a boner in this scene. <laughs> <laughs> um, that said, it was very important to me to put in there uh, for a couple of reasons. This book has some conversation about sex and intimacy in it. And it's important to me that even though this is a noir, where everything is dark and bad and dangerous, right? This is the nature of noir, that it, it takes that nice thing that you have and it says, look what's underneath it. And it's all bad under there. Um, I, don't, I don't want that for certain things, right? There's queerness in this book. I didn't want this book to be like, look at the bad things that happen to queer people. I, there's sex in this book. There's consequences of irresponsible sex in this book. And I didn't want, and this is emotionally irresponsible sex I'm talking about. Um, I didn't want this book to be saying, look at the bad things that happen if you bone down. That's, that's not the message I want to be sending any of my readers because I don't believe it. And I think it's one of those bad lies that does bad things in the world. Sarah Bagaley, you heard it first, pro boning. Right here at Skylight Books. Put it on my tombstone. Um, <laughs> they died as they lived in favor of, of boning. boning when people want it. You got um, it. You got it, my friend. So that was very intentional. And the sex positivity was very intentional. That said, I did have to go through and thread even more of it back in in edits because there's a lot of bad things that happen to people in this book. And even with all that intention going in of trying to say, Having sex is not a bad thing to do if you're doing it with, you know, the right consent and emotional frequency and whatever. Um, you, you know what I'm talking about. If, you do, if, you're, if you're doing the right stuff, it's good to do. You might be giving, giving someone the talk right now. I might be. I'm sorry. I didn't want you to find out this way, <laughs> how, how babies are made. Um, even with all that intention, there was still the potential to read this book and go, oh, I see 
you think that if you have sex, all these bad things will happen to you. And that's your message. So I still wanted to go through and make it kind of beyond a reasonable doubt for a reader of this book that bad things happen to you even though it's okay to have sex. And bad things happen to you even though it's okay to be queer. Um, it took a lot of work. It took a lot of intention. I have a similar thing with my my YA novel that's coming out next year from Simon Pulse, which um, opens with a one character, one teen character accidentally murdering the boy who she's trying to sleep with by magically exploding his penis off. And uh, such a so relatable. Yeah. <laughs> And, and it's a similar thing, right? This is a story that features sex. It's a story that features bad things happening to people. Um, it features emotional consequences to sex. And all the intention in the world doesn't change the fact that if someone picks up this book and reads it and takes away from it that you deserve to die for having sex, then I've done harm to the world. And so with both of these books, I had to go back through and, like, like code in a subliminal message to each page and we're going to weave it into the fibers of the page that says like it's okay to have sex if you want it and the other party wants it can i have some of that thread that sounds great <laughs> it's a good it's a good thread yeah. so speaking of bodies one of my favorite parts about this book is that it really explores a lot of issues of like bodily autonomy is that something that you drew from our current issues that might be happening right now what um uh, you know none again as a mm-hmm. as a disabled person whose body is like apparently capable of getting pregnant. I've never encountered problems with bodily autonomy. I've never, that's never been an issue for me. Um, there's, there's a lot in this book about um, consent and bodily autonomy, especially in medicine, um, and especially in reproductive medicine. Um, I encounter a lot of that. I'm disabled. I walk with a cane. I don't know why. I don't know yet what's wrong with my body. I just know that sometimes my legs are like, no, we're not doing this. We don't do this anymore. Um, And so I I interact with a lot of doctors. And there's really, really good doctors who provide trauma-informed, consent-informed medicine where they get into your space in a reasonable way and get your consent before they do things to you. And then there's doctors who are like, okay, uh, I'm doing this to you now. And it's, it's harmful, it's traumatizing, it's scary, it's painful, it's, it's bad to do. It's a bad thing. And I wanted to discuss that in this book. It is not a spoiler to say that this book deals with wizard medicine, and it deals with uh, wizard reproductive medicine in many ways. And there You've got to make those little wizards somehow. <laughs> yeah, that's the only way to do it. Um, <laughs> Two wizards love each other so much. you you got to get your wand. No. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Nope. Nope. I'm not giving both talks tonight. Only the non-magical <laughs> talk. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. you got to learn somehow else. Um, this book talks about the harm that can be done to a person emotionally and psychologically and socially if there is not adequate consent that they are able to give to someone who is going to perform medical care on them and especially reproductive medical care. Um, the invasive nature of that care, the, the way that receiving, I calling it care feels weird, but receiving like harmful care stays with a person and, and, and affects their entire life and affects their ability to seek more care after that and to form relationships with people who are in positions of authority after that. I wanted to talk about that in this book because it's a huge issue for me, for a lot of my disabled comrades, for I'm sure a lot of people who are not disabled as well. 
Um, seeking care is scary. Seeking care when you are a teenager in a real rough position is scary. Seeking care from adults who you don't know if they're going to help you or hurt you and how they might help you or hurt you is scary. And Magic for Liars is so much about that. It's so much about seeking help from someone when you're in a vulnerable position and what harm is possible in those moments. And also good things. There's good things too. Don't worry. <laughs> there are definitely good things. Uh, so like that makeout scene. Yeah. You hold out for that boner, guys. <laughs> Uh, so one of the things that Ivy is going through during the course of Magic for Liars is she's really trying to figure out her identity. Is that something that you empathize with? And do you think that magic would help you? Oh, man. I, oh. Okay, so on the one hand, my instinct is to say, like, yes, oh, man, I really wish that I had magic to help me figure out my identity stuff. And on the other hand, this book is, like, all about how magic doesn't fix everything. <laughs> And how having magic and trying to use it to fix your identity stuff and figure it all out doesn't actually help you. So I probably shouldn't say yes to that. I probably should say it. But also it's a fiction book. So like maybe magic would be useful. Um, I, as I mentioned earlier, right, like I got a lot of identity vectors. I got a lot of identity stuff. And it's tiring. And it takes up a lot of time. And it takes up a lot of energy to try and figure out. Especially when you're like a, a teen and in your early 20s. And you're like, okay, this is who I am now. And then, like, six months later, you're like, oh, that was bad. <laughs> well, uh, I'm that one now. Um, Magic for Liars is so much about that and is so much about going through that process. Ivy goes through that. Um, this is not a spoiler because it's, like, the, um, what do you call it, the, like, the plot of the book. Um, <laughs> she goes to this magic school to try and solve this murder and finds herself slipping into the lie of being magic and trying to convince the people around her that she is magic and that she's one of them. And she tells herself that she's doing that to help get answers about the case. But, you know, yeah, Ivy. there might be some other stuff going on, like emotionally. Um, the teenagers in this book are also doing that all the time. They are thinking, you know, I've read this story or seen a movie that has this kind of person in it. So what if I'm that kind of person? What if I'm the chosen one? How do I act? What if I'm the manipulative mean girl who is popular but also mean? <laughs> what if I do that? And everyone in this book is trying on identities. It's, it's very much, and I, I was fortunate enough to get to write about this um, just today for Barnes & Noble. It's very much a part of the queer experience. Trying to define yourself in a world that says, this is your default identity, so everything else, you've got to get a changing room and try it on and see if it fits you. And it's like trying on jeans where any one that doesn't fit you right is like the worst thing that you've ever encountered. Um, I spent a lot of time trying on bad jeans. I spent a lot of time trying on like high-waisted jeans that were too tight and those low-rise jeans that like lace up in the front. Oh, they should be illegal. I don't know why those were ever allowed to exist. Oh, the 90s. <laughs> and I'm probably going to spend more time trying on identity jeans going okay, well, the labels that are available to me right now are these, and they seem like they fit right, but then 20 years from now, we're going to be like, are you an Alfred or are you a proof rock? And I'm going to be like, oh, i got to figure that one out. Important questions. Yeah. And that, that's all in this book, that process of trying to figure out who you are by process of elimination, and sometimes painful process of elimination, and sometimes really satisfying process of elimination. So now we're going to open it up to questions. We will take boner questions, but only one. So make so it a good one. Better be great. 
Hi. Um, I definitely wrote this for an adult audience. I will tell you that my publisher would get very upset at me if I didn't say, but it's a YA crossover. <laughs> really? Um, yeah. That's... Even with all the bonering? Oh, I guess YA has boner stuff. <laughs> teens, teens know about boners, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Crazy. I think they've heard of them. You know, they, they read the papers. <laughs> I want to read the boner papers. <laughs> well, they're right here. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> Um, I definitely intended this for an adult audience. I would not recommend it for middle grade. Middle grade readers are more mature than we give them credit for, and individual middle grade readers are going to have their own, you know, whatever. You know your 14-year-old better than I do. Um, I hope. If not, get on that. But uh, it's definitely an older YA and adult novel. It explores a lot of high school-y stuff because it takes place at a high school, but a lot of that exploration is about what it's like to look back. as a, a grown adult who has not been in high school since I was in high school, <laughs> going back to a high school, I've gone to like speak at a couple of schools. And you know, sometimes you have to go like do a, a thing at like a library or whatever. It always feels really, it's this really unique feeling to me. Um, it's, it's like the opposite of nostalgia. It's that thing where you look back and you're like, oh wow, this place that I'm in, with these shitty linoleum floors and these big gray trash cans and that graffiti that I don't understand because it's an inside joke at the school mm-hmm. takes me back to a time in my life that was so hard and that I would never return to. I don't care how much money you could pay me. Would not happen. If you, have, if you offered me like Bezos money, I'd be like, no, still no. Um, it's about watching the high school experience from adult eyes and seeing high schoolers doing things that you remember as feeling really different when you were inside a high schooler's body, when you, when you were a teenager, uh, things that felt important, things that felt slick, things that felt crucial and permanent, and looking back at those things with adult eyes and going, oh, wow, that is exactly as important to you as it was to me. And I don't remember how to empathize with it all the time. And if we went back to high school, people would be wearing those low-rise jeans. It'd be terrifying. No. Don't bring back trap pants. They're coming, Sarah. <laughs> They're coming. <laughs> Do we have any other questions? Don't make Sarah mad. Are you okay? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, when you're in traffic and someone cuts you off and you're just like, what could I do about this? <laughs> um, I, I wrote both of these books before I recognized that I was ill. Um, back when I was still like, no, like just everybody like hurts all the time and is tired all the time and it's fine. It's normal. They just don't talk about it. So I won't talk about it. I know. No, it was good decision making. It was good judgment. Worked out great. Nothing escalated. Um, In hindsight, I was writing these as an exploration both of gender and disability and, like, what can be done to a person that can either fix them or harm them. Um, I, this will surprise no one who's ever read anything I've written, am deeply traumatized. And the idea of taking apart 
a, a body or a mind into its component parts and being able to see what's wrong and do something about it, it's total wish fulfillment. It's complete wish fulfillment. I mean, it doesn't work out great for the people in this book mostly or the, the person in that other book who gets, you know, ex exploded. But <laughs> it's, it's an idea, right? It's a really appealing idea that someone could come up to me and go, zoop, and I'm exploded. And then they look at me and they go, oh, see, here's the part that's bad. And they take it out. Or that someone could take a person's body apart and put it back together again in a way that feels right. Um, I am non-binary. The flavor of non-binary that I am, I don't always feel like my body is, is right. That's not true of everyone who is anyone, but it's true for me. And the idea that that could be possible is something that I love exploring because maybe if I write about it enough, it'll be true. Maybe it'll be like Star Trek and cell phones. <laughs> the one, only one way to find out. Yeah. More exploding bodies. Oh, yeah. I'm on it. I'll explode anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Line them up. Uh, do we have any other questions? I don't I have no idea how we're doing on time, by the way. Yeah, I don't know either. Oh, we're good. Okay. I'm so happy that you asked this question because then I get to talk. Look at the light in your eyes. I know. This is the exploding body light. Um, so I think that it would be disingenuous, first of all, to say that any fantasy YA written in the last 15 years, I don't know. I don't know what year it is. Um, any contemporary fantasy, any, any school fantasy, um, any person discovers that they have magic powers or a person discovers that there's another land fantasy written in the last 15 years, I think it's disingenuous to say that those things aren't in some way in conversation with Harry Potter. Because Harry Potter, you know, for everything that she's doing now, uh, for all of that, we all just like collectively shivered. Um, for all of that, Harry Potter changed the face of contemporary fantasy literature. It changed the face of children's literature. It changed the face of literacy, period. It, it has had a huge impact on our culture. And obviously, Magic for Liars owes a debt of gratitude to that. Obviously, I could not have written this book if there was not that foundation. That said, um, there's some things about the magical boarding school narrative in Harry Potter and the magical school narrative that you know, kind of gets recycled a lot from that. The, like, anglophilic kid discovers something within himself and everything changes. Um, there's a chosen one who is, like, a white, cisgendered, heterosexual, able-bodied boy. <laughs> there was a lot of that that I wanted to... Answer is too strong a word, but answer in Magic for Liars. Um, things that I wanted to pointedly be in conversation with in this book. So we've got a chosen one who thinks he's Harry Potter, right? He's a 17-year-old boy. He is all of those different identity vectors that the chosen one always seems to be. And he has a family prophecy that says there's going to be a chosen one in his generation of teens. And he's like, got it. No problem. I'm on the case. And he keeps trying to make it happen. 
he keeps trying to make the prophecy go because the prophecy's like he's gonna have a big thing happen to him and he's like got it got it ready i'm ready what do i gotta do what do i gotta do and it keeps not happening so there's a an exploration of that and of the way that that immense pressure affects a person affects a teenager um again i was in the smart kid classes i was in like ap classes in high school and it 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 has shaped me in really bad ways um, when I was in kindergarten, they tested everyone in my class to be like, who are the smart ones? Oh, you're the smart ones? Okay, here you go. Here's a lifetime of academic anxiety and overachiever <laughs> complex. Uh, don't fail. Also, you've only got until college to do everything that you're going to have to do to set up the rest of your life for any kind of success. Otherwise, hmm. I wanted to write about that and about the way that the chosen one narrative like distills that and says, hey, all that pressure, more, just you. It's only you. Congratulations. Don't fuck it up. <laughs> Dylan DeCambray in this book has all that pressure shaping him. His brain is cooking in it. Um, it's not good for him, just like it wasn't good for me. Just like it's probably not good for any person who, to be told as a child, you're the most important person who's ever lived. I don't know. I feel like there could be a prophecy coming true about you. No, no. It could be happening right now. No, not that one. I'm going to turn into a lizard. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That would be great. I was going to say, you I would love, love that. that. I would love that. <laughs> um, I also wanted to talk about high school itself. Um, the, the, I had a great question at another event. I'm stealing this like whole cloth, this phrasing. The anglophilic obsession with castles <laughs> in magical boarding school narratives or the obsession with like an Ivy League style school, right? This like class element that comes into it. Um, I feel like a lot of magical high school narratives and magical school and magical discovery narratives feature a place where you go, right? That's not the place where you were. So great. Step one, done. You're in a new place. It feels better. But these places are filled with children and teenagers. And these places are like a castle that's filled with tapestries and oil paintings. And if you track mud in, you'll get yelled at by the groundskeeper. And I don't know if any of you have ever been inside of a high school, but high schools are not defined that way. High schools are not defined by the architect who designed them. They're not defined by the administrators who fight the rising tide of entropy to try and keep them nice. They aren't defined by the teachers. They're defined by the kids. They're defined by the teenagers. Teenagers define their space. It's what they do reflexively, right? If you think about like a teenager's room, it's important to them. When I was a teenager, every time I went through that like new identity thing where I was like, okay, no, that didn't work, I'm this now, I would rearrange and redecorate my room as best I could to reflect that. In a high school, it's the same thing. These kids are there, I don't know, now they're there for like 90 hours a day doing you know, class and extracurriculars and volunteering and tutoring and whatever horrible things we make them do because we don't want to allow them to sleep. Um, they're there, and so they define their space, either by decorating it or by destroying it. Magic for Liars has that school in it. It has a real high school with those, like, those shitty linoleum floors with little black circles on them, and every black circle is a piece of gum that fell out of a kid's mouth and then didn't get picked up and then got walked on and walked on and walked on and walked on until now it's part of the floor, and if you try and clean it up, you're going to get to the foundation of the school. It has that. It it has graffiti, real graffiti, not the kind of graffiti that is like so abnormal and strange that it makes up the plot of an entire Harry Potter book. <laughs> it has graffiti like kids do. It has things in hiding places that kids find that they think the janitor won't notice because they define their space. 
And that is a huge response in me to Harry Potter and the magical boarding school narrative where spaces don't stay impeccable because teens change them by being in them. Thank you. And I think you had a question. I mean, this is if, you're, if you want to talk about magic, you came to the right place tonight. Yeah, this so is the this load spot. up the magic questions. I don't want to alarm anyone, but this book, there's magic in it. Oh man, I every time I get to talk about uh, this, I get really excited because I get to talk about who framed Roger Rabbit. <laughs> oh, that was such a good <laughs> collective noise. You guys get it. Um, so you know, people want to know with this book, like, what what's your noir influence? Because it's a fantasy noir. It's both together, peanut butter, jelly, also maybe like good bread, and like if you put some gr like granola in there. Sorry. Um, the noir influence that I, I think of every single time is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Because I love you so it's, much. <laughs> it's, to my mind, it's some of the best contemporary noir on film. It's also just one of the best movies that exists. It holds up great. I rewatched it recently. It's really good. Um, you know, it does things with animation that, like, no one had ever done before. And it's, it's beautiful on a craft level. But it's also great noir. It's all about corruption. It's about Los Angeles, which... You know, you guys know <laughs> what's going on here. <laughs> it's about um, the way that people hurt each other. It's about cowardice and courage. And this book would not have been written if I had not watched Who Framed Roger Rabbit a million times as a kid and as an adult. Um, that film distills all the things about noir that I want to talk about. It is fun and entertaining. And it's also about marginalization and, again, corruption and scandal. It's about the way that things don't really change, but also they change so fast all the time. And that, I, I hope, is in this book. It's definitely in, in here. Um, and every other noir influence that I could talk about would just be me finding another way to talk about who framed Roger Rabbit. <laughs> You're an American hero. <laughs> Oh yeah. Um, okay. This. So, I write about what interests me about things, including magic systems. Um, and I don't read me, my reviews except for when I do. And the one of the things that gets talked about a lot is the how much or how little I explain magic systems in anything that I write, um, because I write about magic a lot. Because you know, I'm doing it. I don't. I don't know why. That's a therapy conversation. Um, the magic system in this book is not very accessible because this book is from Ivy Gamble's point of view. She isn't magic. And in this book, magic is intrinsic. You are magic or you're not. And it's not like a, like a bloodline thing because that's racist and it's, it's not a thing that you can buy and it's not a thing that you can learn if you just work hard enough and have that can-do attitude. You have it or you don't. And if you don't have it, you can't totally understand it. It's like, to me, it's like gender that way, right? Where like, I can try and explain my gender identity to you until all of us are falling asleep in our chairs. But really, I'm going to be telling you language that I heard someone else use. And I'm going to be saying it in a way that I hope you'll understand. And it's never going to be fully explaining the way that it feels to be the person who I am. 
magic in this book is like that. And Ivy spends the entire book trying to understand it and trying to understand it enough and trying to make other people think that she understands it enough by repeating what she's heard other people say who do understand it enough. And that isn't ever going to make her understand it. And so the reader doesn't get to fully understand it. The reader, my hope anyway, will feel the way Ivy does, like it's right there. And you can get it if you just find out a little bit more. Um, that's the system in this book. And the way that I developed those parameters is totally character driven, right? I've got a character who can't understand this. How do I make you, the reader, feel that way? Um, so it's my, my deep hope that it will remain impossible to explain and impossible to understand and that you'll get to the end of the book and turn the next page looking for a glossary and there won't be one there. Or maybe there will be. <laughs> it is my deep hope that you stop reading your bad reviews. I don't, I don't read my bad reviews. I make someone else read them for me and then tell me that they're wrong. <laughs> Sarah Gailey. Do we have any other questions? Oh, Yeah. I love this question. Okay, so um, River of Teeth, for anyone who doesn't know, is my first novella. Uh, it's in an omnibus with its partner, Taste of Marrow, called, and the omnibus is called the American Hippo Omnibus. It's the story, here's one. It's the story of um, an America where there are cowboys in the Mississippi River Delta who ride hippos instead of horses. And they do that because of an ecological collapse caused by American governmental hubris. So it's like really bizarre and out there, like we don't know anything about that in our contemporary world that we live in. <laughs> um, this story, it's, it's an alternate history and it features a lot of queer characters and a lot of people of color. Um, and it's an alternate history because there are feral hippos that have infested the Mississippi River. And that, I don't know if you're familiar with the Mississippi River. It, it's not like that <laughs> it's today or ever, ever in the past. Remains to be seen for the future. We can keep hoping. Yeah. Someday. The thing that made me want to write about this, first of all, is that it's super fun. Uh, this book is based on a thing that almost actually happened in America where, long story short, this guy had this great plan to solve all of our problems by importing hippos to raise for meat. And everyone in Congress was like, great idea. And one guy in Congress was like, hippos kill people all the time. Every day, it's their favorite thing to do. And everyone in Congress was like, no, but we're American, so we can handle it. It's okay. And this almost passed from, from a bill into a law. It almost passed, or no, from a bill into, oh God, I need to yep, nope, rewatch. Yeah. It almost passed. It failed to pass by one vote. One <laughs> vote. And if that vote had gone the other way, we would have hippos in the U.S. And I don't know if you're familiar with anything about American history of farming and ranching and agriculture and how we manage that stuff, but it would have been a huge boom and bust um, because Americans did not know how to handle hippos, which if you try and tell a hippo to stay on your ranch... I invite you to add me to your will before you try and tell the hippo to do that. 
Um, and hippos have an actual ecological history of going into unfamiliar environments and populating it with feral hippos. They don't want to die, so they won't. They don't feel like it. They're like, <laughs> you're like, oh, hippo, you're not well suited to this environment. And the hippo's like, interesting. <laughs> Watch me. Um, this is the case in Colombia where a small businessman um, had some success in his career and his life, and he had some large estates that had zoos on them. And um, I don't know if you've heard of him. He, he had a, a failure due to intervention by the U.S. government. His name was Pablo Escobar. And the DEA came and busted open his zoos, and all the animals in the zoos went out into Colombia and died because they weren't from there except that the hippos, of which there were, I think, four in his zoos, went out into Columbia and were like, we're here, baby, <laughs> and totally took over. Now there's hundreds of hippos in Colombian waterways, and they kill and eat people and kill and eat animals all the time. They are obligate herbivores, except that they don't give a shit what you think. So <laughs> there are hundreds of recorded cases of scientists going out into the wild to observe hippos and being like, oh, they're killing and eating that animal. That's not good for them. And the hippos are like, well, you know what? That entire sleeve of Thin Mints wasn't good for you either. But <laughs> I guess we're going to have a conversation. <laughs> so that's the premise of these books. The premise of the books is that the U.S. did import the hippos, and then it went predictably awry. And now there are feral hippos populating the Mississippi, and it's a real pickle for everybody. And the U.S. government hires a bunch of hippo-riding cowboys to try and clear the hippos out and make it someone else's problem. Um, that's the premise of these books. So the reason I wanted to write these books is because that's really fun to write about. It's fun to talk about. Like, it's neat. Uh, I wanted to write a heist narrative, and doing that with cowboys is really fun. And also I wanted to write a queer narrative, and doing that with cowboys is really fun. And doing that, like, in that whole setting, it was just fun. It was fun pulpy. It's a love letter to pulp western. But it totally is in larger conversation with something sneaky me because um american history is alternate history the history that we learn in our textbooks in high school is alternate history my high school textbook said that the civil war was about states rights period and when someone in my class raised their hands and said states rights to what <laughs> my teacher was like trade <laughs> right we don't talk about our actual history. Um, a lot of people who I know think that most cowboys were white heterosexual men. Most cowboys were people of color. A lot of cowboys were queer. A lot of people were women. A lot of people were women. A lot of cowboys were women. <laughs> a lot of cowboys were trans people because they could go and do their job without being around a small community of people who'd be like, you're not allowed to be like that. What are you doing? Um, because there was great money in it, because there were skills passed down from their parents and grandparents who did similar jobs, whether or not they were doing those jobs with the United States of America or not. I was writing reality into this alternate history by putting these people in this story. Um, I was writing a book that talks about the actual American history of ecological ruin. You know the... Um, I don't know if you've heard of this. It might be kind of obscure. The Dust Bowl? <laughs> That's our fault. We did that. I mean, we didn't do that. I don't know how old you are. Some of you might be Highlanders or vampires. Maybe it is your fault. If it is, that was really messed up. 
but that was It'd be really scary if there were multiple Highlanders in this room because then we're in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) That's stuff that we did. It's stuff that we still do, right? We strip uh, the ecological environments that we have for resources and then one generation later we're like, oh no, the resources! (laughs) They're gone! (laughs) Where'd they go? River of Teeth is about that. It's about that real part of our history. It's about... um, the real things that we do as a country and that we historically have done as a country and the places we've almost gone, again, one vote, that hippo thing did not happen by one vote. We could be there. And there's a lot of other things that we've done where it's like, oh yeah, we're there. Um, I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about real, real history, even though I was bringing hippos into it. Um, And that's definitely an ongoing project of mine. My, I have another novella coming out from tour.com early next year called Upright Women Wanted that is about queer anti-fascist spy librarians on horseback in the near future Southwest. <laughs> it's like every adjective I can throw on there. Um, and that's based on real stuff. There's, there's not a lot in that book that isn't either really happening today or has happened in the past. We have had periods uh, in our U.S. history where education was so inaccessible to people because of the distribution of resources that the only way to get books was for a lady riding a horse to come to your house and be like, here are the books that I have. Um, Please don't ruin them because we have to make them last, uh, I guess, forever because we're not getting more. Um, The fascism in that book is, I mean, it's like here. And I'm writing, you know, like historically fantastical things, but also it's my opportunity to be like, it's happened, it's real. But also like hippos, you know? Mm-hmm. Why, why wouldn't you want to write about them? They're terrible. Do we have any other, how many, how much time do we have? Two questions. Okay. okay, last one. Really difficult question. What's your hot Is this difficult? I got three snake rings on me right now. <laughs> I'm absolutely a Slytherin. Yeah. Come on. Ivy. Oh, whew. that is a good question. I think Ivy's a Gryffindor because she really is just going to barrel head first into a situation <laughs> and just be like, I'm going to make it work. <laughs> it's fine. Um, yeah. Also, if there are any Hufflepuffs in this room tonight, you're my brethren and I love you. I might not be a Hufflepuff, but I'll kill for you. <laughs> Are we all set? All right, let's Thank give it up you. for Sarah fucking Gailey. Thank you. And thank you, Mallory. You can't clap for me. This is, I get to clap whoever I want. Also, if you haven't already purchased and read Lady from the Black Lagoon, which is Mallory O'Mara's nonfiction book about Millicent Patrick, you must read it. It's beautiful. It's angry. It's filled with righteous rage. And it's perfect. I love you. This is when two friends blurb each other's books. <laughs> <laughs> thank you all so thank much you for, all coming, for out. coming out. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.